Everything in the central area here in Hollywood is being funneled toward the Pantages Theater because this is Oscar night. And keep your eyes on the losers tonight as they applaud the winners. You'll see great understanding, great sportsmanship, great acting. Well, the only thing left to say is, meet the champion. Hello, and welcome back to the Snub Club. I'm Danny Vincent. I'm here to sing a song. And by sing a song, I mean do an episode about a musical. But other hosts are with me, and that is all okay. Who are they? I don't know, but they're about to say. Hey. Um, my name's Sarah. My name's Sarah. Who else is with me? Who? My name's Sarah. My name's Sarah. Who else could it be? I feel targeted because I can't <laughs> sing. <laughs> I'm Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told that my singing is um to to paraphrase a Pixar movie. Anybody can sing, but that doesn't mean anybody everybody should. That's what I've been told about my singing. <laughs> That's so rude. <laughs> <laughs> I literally at work, anytime I sing along a song, the kids are like, "Danny, shut up." Oh, well, kids are jerks. That's yeah, it's true. I, That's true. It's one of the things I love about kids. <laughs> so in case you can't tell, this is we're covering our first musical this week since. since. I, I, no, yes. hold on. I was getting the sense. I was getting the sense. I, I'm well, I remember the love parade. It had singing dogs. But since the love parade in our very second episode. So this is really our second musical ever. I think so. Although wow. this director did do another music-themed film that we covered before. Yes. Uh, which, uh, the cinematography reminder. But we'll get in. I gotta say, I gotta do the countdown. At the 25th Academy Awards, there were three films nominated for seven Oscars. I'm laughing because when I say seven Oscars, I'm reminded of my my student film in college where I go, where Billy Wilder goes, I won seven Oscars. Okay, sorry. So the three films nominated for seven Oscars: uh, High Noon, which won four. It won Best Actor for Gary Cooper, Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, Best Original Song. Uh, I have in my notes that Sarah will say the title later because the title is really long. I don't, don't want to say it twice. And Best Film Editing. Another film that had seven nominations was Moulin Rouge, not the Baz Luhrmann one. Uh, it won two art direction, color, and costume design. Then, with seven, another one with seven nominations and two wins was The Quiet Man. That won Best Director for John Ford and Best Cinematography in Color. Then there was a movie with six nominations The Bad and the Beautiful. It won five of those. It won Supporting Actress for Gloria Graham, Best Adapted Screenplay, and then it swept the Black and White Tech Awards with Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and Best Costume Design. But then there was a film with six nominations and no wins. And Sarah, what is its name? It's Hans Christian Andersen. Andersen. <laughs> what was it nominated for? Um, so Hans Christian Andersen uh, was nominated for Best Art Direction Color for Richard Day, Anthony Clave, who was just credited as Clave. I did notice that was pretty cool, I thought. And uh, Howard Bristol. And they lost to Paul Sheriff and Marcel Verite for Moulin Rouge. Um, Day was nominated for 12 more and won seven. Um, this movie is Clave's only two nominations. And Bristol was nominated eight more times. 
Uh, best cinematography color for uh, Harry Stradling, who lost to Winton C. Ha and Archie Stout for The Quiet Man. Um, Stradling was nominated for 11 more and won two. Uh, best costume design color, uh, also for Clave, uh, Mary Wills and Barbara Karen. Barbara Yurinska, um, and they lost to Marcel Verite for Moulin Rouge. Again, Clave was only nominated two times. Uh, Wills was nominated five more times and won for the wonderful, the wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. And Karinska won one for Joan of Arc. Best scoring of a musical picture for Walter Scharf, who lost to Alfred Newman for With a Song in My Heart. Uh, Scharf was nominated nine more times. Uh, best song for Frank Blosser, who lost to Dimitri Toemkin and Ned Washington for High Noon, The Ballad of High Noon, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. Um, not not that Blosser, long a title in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Uh, and Blosser was nominated three more times and won for a little song called Maybe It's Cold Outside for Neptune's Daughter. And finally, uh, best sound recording for Gordon E. Sawyer, who lost to the London Film Sound Department for Breaking the Sound Barrier. Um, Sawyer was nominated 11 more times and won three, plus a Medal of Commendation. What about Breaking the Sound Barrier? Is that a doc? No, it's, it's not. It's a, it's a narrative movie. Yeah. Cool. Do you want to do a store context or do you want me to do Oscar ceremony talk, Caleb? I just have a little bit of historical context, so okay, we'll go with that. I got a lot of Oscar talk, so go on. <laughs> so Hans Christian Andersen, writer of such tales as The Little Mermaid and uh, The Matchstick Girl, uh, Ugly Duckling, a lot of them that I'm sure we'll talk about as they pop up in this film. Also, a little bit socially oblivious, which I think also comes across in this film. That's kind of demonstrated in how he interacted with another famous writer, Charles Dickens. So they met briefly when Hans Christian Andersen was visiting England. They had a nice little conversation. They had some letters corresponding back and forth. Um, And as you do to an acquaintance, you drop a line and say, hey, if you're ever in my neck of the woods, we'll grab lunch or something. This is what Charles Dickens told uh, Hans Christian Andersen. What Hans Christian Andersen heard was, you should unexpectedly show up at my house and stay for five weeks, expecting me to spend the entire time with you, completely disregarding my wife and children. So Hans Christian Andersen did this, uh, and the Dickenses, Dickenses were very upset by this, uh, and eventually they kind of kicked him out. Uh, and he went back. Uh, he went back home, and he was very confused why his friend Charles Dickens refused to refused to write him after that. Um, but that's just a fun little episode in Hans Christian Andersen's life that I think could easily fit into this film. It would have been fun. I would have liked it more probably than some spots of it. I actually I know some more stuff about Hans Christian. I think we'll talk about Hans Christian Andersen's real life more when we talk about the movie. I have. A lot of historic context. Well, not historic context. That's the name of your segment. I have a lot of Oscar talk because this is a monumental ceremony. This is the first televised Oscar ceremony. It's a big deal. Look, it is a big, it's a huge jump. One of our, one of our sound bits in the intro comes from the television broadcast. The very first one. Nice. I think so. I haven't haven't listened to it since you pledged me the first time. Sorry. 
tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll finally listen to, I'll catch up on this podcast and my Pixar podcast and I'll finally know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> so this was held in both Hollywood and New York at the same time. And this was the only time it was held in New York on the NBC International Theater in Columbus Circle because it was demolished very soon after in place with the New York Coliseum. Now, this telecast happened because actually this is not a surprise this should uh this this came up i remember this coming up when the new um the all the controversy recently with the academy happened which is that the reason the ceremony started being televised is because they needed to finance the academy like because the film studios initially financed the academy and then eventually they were like no we don't want to do that if you don't award our movies which you know obviously defeats the point of an awarding body. Now, granted, we can all talk about how the Oscars are bought anyway with awards campaigns, but that's a different type of buying. That's American mm-hmm. democracy buying. Uh, <laughs> uh, so in order to fund the show, they're like, all right, we'll air it on TV, which I think I have to imagine was controversial. There's nothing in Wikipedia about this being controversial all the time, but I have to imagine it was because, you know, TV was viewed the enemy as fil- of films at that time. And the idea that the awards for movies would be on TV feels like, whatever now wikipedia has a ton of info about like the specific number like the specific like type of television statement and and satellite network they use to like broadcast this at the same time i'm not gonna read all that uh they were paid um ampus you know the academy was paid 200 and now it says a hundred thousand but sources report up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars for this the rights to air this show um, it was broadcast from 1030 to 1215 on the East Coast. Um, and it started late because a lot of the nominees at the time were still performing on Broadway. So they could go to do their night on the show and then go to the awards. Now, the only fun fact about the show I have exactly is that Bob Hope had to wear a blue dress shirt with his dinner jacket because the white shirt would have been too bright with the current technology used on television. Now. As for our normal Oscar talk, just a couple things. Uh, the big thing that did not come up in our talk about, uh, you know, all the wins for Hans, all the losses for Hans Christian Anderson is Best Picture, which infamously went to the greatest show on Earth over High Noon. It is ranked the 94th worst film to win the Oscar, only ahead of the Broadway Melody, which is only so low. Uh, it's ranked on, to be clear, I'm talking about Rotten Tomatoes, so like critically, just critically. Broadway melody is so low because it literally is just a Broadway melody. Now, something I think is relevant to our talk about this is that while Hans Christian Andersen got six nominations, Singing in the Rain got two in the same year. This is the year of Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain was nominated for Supporting Actress for uh, Caleb's, I think we've talked about her before, Gene Hagen for as Lena Lamont and Best Score, which I think is crazy that didn't get any like cinematography noms for color, you know, or costume design for color. Or that there weren't any other performance nominations. That's because true. that's a packed full of great performances. Yeah. And well, granted, thank God this didn't get any performance nominations. Thank God. Hans Christian Anderson didn't. The Bad and the Beautiful holds the record for the most wins for a film not nominated for Best Picture. Because it won five because it slept the black and white. This is the last time a film that wasn't nominated for Best Picture won the most awards. This is the last year until 2015 when Spotlight wins. 
that the Best Picture winner only won one over Oscar. Shirley Booth is the last person born in the 19th century to win an Oscar for a leading role, and the first woman ever in her 50s to win Best Actress. The second woman in her 50s, can you guys guess who? It happened in the last 15 years. Viola Davis. Oh, it happened when we were in oh. college. It was Julianne Moore. Oh. No, Julianne Moore. No, because she wasn't leading. She was fraud and supporting oh. professors. It's a leading one. Yeah, Julianne Moore is the only other one. To, she was 54, same age as Shirley Booth. John Ford's fourth win sets him to be the record and still has the record of most wins for Best Director. Uh, and my last stat about this ceremony is that this is the first time Best Picture, Best Director, and all four acting Oscars are rewarded to six different films. It happens three more times on this podcast. Happens in 1956, it happens in 2005, and it happens in 2012. All right. All of Wait, you Oscar- didn't. You didn't. I have one more uh, fact about, Jess, you mentioned High Noon. And yeah. since we talked about the Blacklist pretty extensively a little while back, High Noon was specifically written as an allegory for the Blacklist, with its main character having to face down uh this criminal and everyone in the town turning their back on them um and it was actually a pretty uh controversial ish film uh it led to howard hawks directing rio bravo as kind of a political response um and it it just has an interesting place in film history as a uh one of the first and many attempts to kind of address the blacklist it um also has an interesting place in Danny's history in that it's the first film he ever watched in a, a film class for a film class. Because uh, they showed it in high school film class because it fit in the hour block, the hour and a half block. It was a good time. I did notice one other interesting stat, and then Sarah, you can give yours, but the short film Neighbors, which I had to watch in school, was nominated both for best documentary short and for best like live action narrative short. It was not. It was deemed both a documentary and a narrative. Which I always think it's interesting when that comes up. Now, Sarah, you said you had something to say. Yeah, you didn't mention you didn't mention the announcer for the night. Oh, Hans Christian Andersen. <laughs> what? No, and the under presenters, the announcer for the. Oh, I didn't see. I only words. saw that Frederick Mark and Bob Hope posted it. No, it was the the announcer was none other than future president of the United States, oh, great. Ronald Reagan. Great. Why does he keep darkening our door? You know, I am really excited. There is an Oscar ceremony. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I, I want you guys to get excited when this happens. Is that there is an Oscar ceremony that was co-hosted by Donald Duck, and when that happens, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about that. I want to okay. find clips. I want to. I want to find clips of Donald Duck hosting. They're pretty. They're they're pretty out there. We can find them. Nice. I'll replace all of the Just sound that. drops in our intro with Donald Duck. That that. <laughs> episode <laughs> all right now it's time for hans christian anderson <laughs> what'd you guys think before we actually dive into it i feel like i should go last because i have something to say oh okay well caleb can or should go i go first, first? no caleb can go first because he published a letterbox review already so i already know his take let me look up that letterbox review <laughs> i published it because i knew that i would probably forget about it by the time we actually got around to um to covering this because I did watch this last week. It's a weird movie, mainly due to how uh oblivious its character is, like all the time. 
Hans Christian Andersen is an idiot in this and would probably end up dying if it wasn't for a young boy who's his ward. Um, but it's fun. There's some fun musical shenanigans in it. There's a nice ballet sequence. Um, I don't know a lot about ballet, but it uh, it seemed cool. I really dug the first half hour of this when it was just like a goofy music about this guy who lives in the most generic like uh, Danish town imaginable. <laughs> I and it's like all Technicolor and and like the music's never really memorable other than of course. Well, also okay, let's be real. Is Hans Christian Andersen the song memorable because it's a memorable song, or is it because he sings "I'm Hans Christian Andersen"? Like, it's it's the only <laughs> song I could sing off the top of my head a week later. So, but I really dig like when it's being a musical, even if the music is like average and the dancing is not really there. Um, I'm less into it when it's a ballet love story that's kind of just the same like unrequited love story we've seen in so many of these movies. And I mean, this is my hot take on Singing on the Rain, uh, which I will admit I haven't seen Singing in the Rain since I was like 10. But I remember hating that sequence in Singing in the Rain where it just cuts to like the Broadway melody in the middle of it, where it's just a dream sequence of dancing and singing. And so that, that was my thought on the ballet. Then I was just like, all right, can we get back and see how this movie actually wraps up, please? Like, I don't really care that much after the first two minutes of this and it keeps going and going and going and that's where it kind of i mean it was already losing me with the romance plot but that's when i was like all right let's wrap it up but sarah what is your thing to say or actually well what did you think of the movie i thought that this was the second best movie that we've watched so far <laughs> <laughs> okay sure like and I'm okay part with of that. it <laughs> So I was watching it and I was like, this is so familiar to me. Like this feels like I've seen this before, but in a very vague way. Like I recognize the sets and I recognize the music. And I was like, like, what is this? And I don't, I honestly don't know where I've seen it. I'm going to guess. I asked my mom and she said that she had never shown it to me. So I'm going to guess because I was really only familiar with the first half. I'm going to guess that I watched it in pre-preschool while my dad was in college and I went to the daycare at the college and we always had to leave early because my dad finished class. So I never got to finish the movie, but I just, I know that I've seen this movie before, at least like the first hour or so. And let me tell you, I loved it. Like, I don't know what it was. I just felt very nostalgic and I, I enjoyed it. I did. I mean, I think that's very, well, obviously the nostalgia aspect is something we don't have, but I think this movie to me, well, okay, not the specific nostalgia, but to me, it does tap into the nostalgia of just old musicals and not like singing, like, not like the ones that, you know, are considered part of the canon, you know, that you've seen. I'm talking like, to me, this reminds me, honestly, the opening, the opening scene in a, I don't remember the town name, but the small Danish town, it reminded me so much of like Willy Wonka. Yes. Like the Technicolor and the green. It was just like, this is like the factory. And I and the music is around the same. Sorry, I'll take that. The music in Willy Wonka outside of pure imagination is not that good. <laughs> but it's it just has that vibe. And of course, also, I'd say Danny Kaye's presence, although obviously not Gene Wilder anarchic, still like has like that warm feeling to it where it's like oh you're in safe hands you know but this guy 
being your showman. And even if I don't like the back half, I do. I did really enjoy like the first half hour or so, the half hour, 45 minutes of it. It is very proto Willy Wonka. And I think a lot of that comes down to Danny Kay, who has this kind of laid back atmosphere about him. And like how Gene Wilder is like, oh, no, stop, come back. He's also kind of like that about everything where it's like, oh, time to go to uh, to Copenhagen. Why not? And then the kid is also very Charlie Bucket, I felt like. So. The, kid? <laughs> the kid, the kid reminded me, you know, that scene in It's a Wonderful Life where he's where uh, young George Bailey finds the chemist mixing up the pills. Yeah. And he's he's like being beaten, so he has to yell. It's like I didn't do it. I didn't mean to do it. That's the, that pitch of that person's voice is what this kid is acting at the entire time. He is very whiny, not even in a bad way, just in an amusing way. It is very weird that he had a transatlantic accent when he's a child. <laughs> I mean, Danny Case is not not trying to. No one in this movie is trying to have an accent other than the one they naturally have. <laughs> well, and the title card to this is like, this is a fairy tale. Don't take yes. it seriously. Well, apparently Danish people were very offended because they call the movie, or they call it Copenhagen, the whole movie. But they, <laughs> Danish people really want you to call it Copenhagen. So, <laughs> I mean, from what I read of Hans Christian Andersen, like, I looked into this and I'm like, all of this seems totally made up, which is fine. Like, the movie's upfront about it, so it's like, ah. I can't hold it against it, but like, yeah. But like, how fun is that? <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's like the solo for Hans Christian Andersen because every single one of his stories is explained. The first thing he sees when he goes into Copenhagen is a little matchstick. It's girl. Very Shakespeare in Love too. I mean, I've never seen. I've seen George Lucas in Love. I haven't seen Shakespeare in Love, but it's very like how I imagine Shakespeare in Love to be. Where it's like, oh, this is how this thing happened, and this is how this thing happened. You know, I don't well, like. Now I don't want to rag on it so much because I like I, I I like what this movie's trying to do, but it's just that back half does not work for me. Once it becomes about like the 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 ballet, I'm just not as into it. Danny hates ballet. I don't like ballet. I don't know. I was gonna say I don't like ballet interrupting my narrative, but it's not like this movie has a strong narrative either. It's just like well, an enjoyable. I was gonna atmosphere. say. <laughs> I mean, this movie has virtually no plot whatsoever, and that's why I appreciate. That's probably why they showed it to, to little kids because <laughs> we wouldn't have understood. <laughs> well, I get it. I, I, because when I was in children's choir, they would show us like cheap biopics about. Not saying this is a cheap biopic, but they'd show us cheap biopics about like Beethoven and Mozart and stuff. And it's like uh, you know these songs. Sorry. This is the I person. just imagine them showing Amadeus and like this is. The <laughs> <laughs> um but like similarly you could be like to little kids it's like oh we just read uh thumbelina and this is this is the guy who wrote it yeah that makes sense definitely um or we watched the, you watch the little mermaid now see the creation of the little mermaid it's a love no letter. because no because i loved the little mermaid as a kid and one of the other movies that they showed at that daycare was a little mermaid and i was so upset because like i said me and my brother always had to leave early because my dad's class then so <laughs> i didn't get to finish watching a little mermaid even though obviously i had seen it many times but that particular time i was very upset because i wanted to finish <laughs> watching it <laughs> that's funny i like little mermaid that's one of my hot takes so i do too I'm, just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a barrel of i'm a barrel of hate right now 
But what, what, no, okay, okay, I wanted to talk a bit more, like, on my issues on the end. Sorry. Sorry to be, like, a Debbie Downer. But after I'm a Debbie Downer, we can talk about all the things I like about it. And obviously, we can talk more about, and you guys can obviously argue with me about the merits of the ballet. Caleb's just pulling out a book because he's like, Danny's just going to filibuster. He's just going to. These are my notes, Danny. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but, okay, so recently I saw, a mo- and, okay, I'm about to do what Caleb hates, just comparative criticism. But it's a film that came out 10 years prior to this that's a musical, which is The Gang's All Here. I watched it last month. It's a Bubsy Berkeley musical, which similarly has no plot. Uh, different is that it's trying to sell war bonds. And you know what? I wanted to buy every war bond after that movie. It was so good. Um, and it also kind of ends with like a 20 minute just like random like thing that completely forgets the plots of the characters. But it resolves the plot before then. So I don't mind as much. Also, I think the only thing really visually interesting about the ballet is the moment where, like, I think it was the mermaids. One of them start flying at one point. I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, the shot I do like visually in this movie, though, is when he's like having like the dream sequence earlier on. And it's just like the the entire screen just suddenly turns green and like gets sucked in. And I'm like, I like that effect. But the ballet itself was just kind of like. It was a ballet, you know, it was a shot ballet that was, it was decently shot. It felt way more like the other Charles Vidor movie we've seen, which is a song to remember the ballet and the sequences with the ballet um, and the direct, the ballerina and the director to me. Those felt like they came in from another movie to me and they weren't nearly as fun because it wasn't Danny Kay dealing with a kid saying, the kid's like, you're not going to be able to do this, Hans. He's like, oh, yes, I am. Hans, we got some shoes to work on. We got some shoes, Hans. I don't want to go to Copenhagen. That place I'll have to work. (laughs) Yeah, because the plot of this is that Hans Christian Andersen gets, he's in a small town and the schoolmaster hates him because he just distracts the kids from going to school. And at the end, he's he's the one happiest singing in the background. (laughs) So the town's members are going to kick Hans Christian Andersen out. So Hans's adopted apprentice convinces him to go to Copenhagen with some some peak. Like you've always wanted to go to Copenhagen, you need to go tonight. This is your only shot. Um, and then once they're in Copenhagen, I'll be honest. There's something about ballerina and they, they get, do little okay, mermaid. Okay, all right, all right. So what happens is what happens is first you skipped over the bus part of it. Which of him getting kicked out, which is literally the teacher just going, I'm tired of the cobbler stealing my students and singing songs to them. And the mayor's just like, ah, guess we gotta get rid of the cobbler then. Well, it doesn't matter because <laughs> because Hans never finds out he was kicked out of the town. <laughs> well well, okay, maybe. I, I didn't catch it either, but according to Wikipedia he did. So I, I didn't notice that either though. <laughs> Sarah's like, I thought the kid just. I don't know. I thought the kid just talked about. No, no, no. It says later on he finds out, but I'm like, I don't. Oh, that makes sense. I don't think he did. I don't remember him finding out. I don't remember that. Yeah. Um. What happens is when he gets to Copenhagen, and I'm just gonna keep pronouncing it any way I want to because this movie doesn't care either. Um. (laughs) Well, Hans Christian Andersen, of course, you know, takes out a nice little spot on the town square and goes. I'm Hans Christian Andersen, here to cobble shoes. And unfortunately, uh, Peter, that's his assistant's name, right? Peter, he's sitting on the statue of the king, so they get arrested for, for uh, public indecency. 
but Peter escapes, and then he meets, uh, and then we sing the Academy Award nominated song, Thumbelina. Thumbelina, 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 Thumbelina. Okay, the reason I remember that song isn't because of the moment he sings it in the movie, like, early on. It's because at the end, that's the song I think that the teacher sings really excitingly along to, and it's just very weird that he's really, like, yeah, he's doing Sarah's doing something for thumbs right now, which is in fact the dance in the movie. This movie is not well that. choreographed. I Other than the ballet, that. the ballet is good, but the dancing to the songs are not. I I remember that scene so vividly. I remember that little girl just being so amazed by these little thumbs. <laughs> so, but then Peter finds in the alley someone arguing about how the ballet needs a cobbler, and he's like, "Well, I know a cobbler who's not doing anything right now." He's just in jail. <laughs> and so they pay his bail. And that's how the ballet gets involved. He's in love with like the main ballerina who's in a weirdly toxic relationship with the director. And so he writes a little mermaid to try to convince her to break up with the director and date him. And then but, they go on tour and nothing ever comes of that. Well, I mean, it's 1952 and it's a film in code. So, of course, they're not going to. Break up the abusive husband and wife because they're still married. Thanks well, to marriage. To be fair, I'm I'm glad Hans didn't get her because I think Hans's obsession is kind of creepy. But... Yeah, Hans is way better when he's an asexual character. You know, like I, I don't need him to be interested in anyone. He just needs to be a magical cobbler. Well, <laughs> I feel like their relationship was kind of sexual, like. They definitely said some things where it was like, I don't know, like we'll, we'll fight the later, the like yeah, the, like yeah, just, yeah, yeah, like their whole thing was very like maybe a little bit too much detail. Hans Christian Andersen in his life was bisexual, uh, according to Wikipedia, which you know Wikipedia is always accurate, but it does say that the only people he probably actually took as lovers were men. It seems like. Actually, let's let, let's be real here. He is. Uh, that sounds pretty gay. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. Let me let me rephrase here. I see here. I'm I'm just double backing all this up. His oh wait no. In his early life, he was celibate. Sorry, my bad. I was going to say he's also ace, but it only says his early life. Um. So as far as I know, he was a uh, playing around later. He in real life, the dancer that he fell in love with was named Harold Scharf, a dancer with the Royal Danish Feeder. Sorry, I wanted to say that. And the snowman, it was inspired by the relationship. There's nothing concrete about any of these lovers, obviously, because Hans Christian Andersen in the 1800s, there's not going to be any like thing concrete about it. But what I was going to say about the bisexual part is that it does say Andersen only found love with un- unattainable women, which I guess is what this movie is trying to go after. Honestly, and I, I don't want to speculate on someone who would have had to been closeted for their whole life and whatever. But like, that would be a good cover though. Be like, yeah, no, I like women. Look at all these women that I've tried to date women that I don't have a chance with. And I know that, and I'm just doing this to like distract. I don't know. I have to say one other thing about his love life, because it's a weird connection to a joke. I sent to Sarah during this, which is that the direct, are you looking at the same thing? Yeah, the, dire- the director in this movie to me looks like, well, also he has like, 
the voice, like the accent that Hugh Jackman has whenever he's doing like an American character that isn't Wolverine, where he's like provide like very provide like the Prestige, or like the Greatest Showman. The reason I bring that up is because I see that one of his unrequited loves and the story of the Nightingale was written as a love letter for Jenny Lind, who was recently, well, recently five years ago portrayed in The Greatest Showman by Rebecca Ferguson. And I'm like, whoa, that's a like crazy connection that I would not have expected to see. Like, well, just in general, that there exists one degree of separation between Hans Christian Andersen and P.T. Barnum. I'm just kind of like, huh, that's interesting. Well, so, I don't think Jenny Lind like actually knew P.T. Barnum, but that's beside the point. Well, no, she did. She they were in a relationship, like that movie implies, but like, or like there was no like attempted relationship. But I thought they just Jenny, used a different woman and just called her Jenny Lind. Whatever, it doesn't matter. No, in real, no, in real life, Jenny Lind knew P.T. Barnum. She that's what P.T. Barnum financed her, her tour in America. His P.T. Barnum financed her tour in America. And that's... Now, everything that happens in that movie with Jenny Lind is a fabrication, but that is a fact that there was a connection between Barnum and Lind in real life. Yes, I'm looking this up on Vanity Fair, and they have an article about it. Yeah, he funded their... He funded her tour, and it was... Uh, it did, wasn't exactly... They don't have exactly a lot of details. That was an interesting. That was an interesting detour here about Hans Christian Andersen's actual love life. Who would have thought? But okay, I've been I've been dominating the conversation a lot here. I feel like, and as the person who liked this movie the least, I don't think it should be that way. Because I I'm unlike other movies that I don't like. I wish I liked this one more. You know, you know what I mean. I don't know. This is a fun movie, so I I don't want to be too mad at it. You know. Well, and it's very refreshing for what we watch because we yes. have not seen. <laughs> A musical since episode two. Most of our movies are kind of depressing. And I would say Hans is a very different male lead than we usually get. Yeah. And also, it's like we've been getting into the color stuff, but other than a song to remember, none of them have really used. Well, uh, you know what? The technical movies we've got have been pretty good, but I don't think any of them have been like as jaw dropping to me at points as this one is, where I'm like, wow, that's really beautiful. Like what they're doing here. Okay, so this has haunted me for the basically my entire life. I don't know how old. I must have been like four years old. So we went to a pumpkin patch. And this was a rare field trip because, again, we would always have to leave early. So we went to a pumpkin patch. And they gave us. Pumpkin patch? Sorry. They gave, us, they gave us jewel bags. And they said, you get to pick two pumpkins. And they were like little gourds. They weren't like full pumpkins. And I spent a really long time picking mine out because I wanted them to be perfect. And then we got back and then we had to like, it all ties together because then we had to leave because my dad had to go. And so they handed me the first bag that they had and I looked into it and I, they were not my pumpkins. And I knew they they weren't my pumpkins. (laughs) I hate when people do that. It drives me insane. I have a memory like that. I can't remember what, but I definitely know the feeling. Sorry, go on. If this had happened in our movie, Sarah would be upset, and then Hans Christian Andersen would come up and say, sing some little song to teach some little little lesson. Be glad you aren't a little match girl dying. You still have a (laughs) gorgeous. Yeah, right. You'd be like, oh, you're poor? Well, don't. Don't be sad. Oh, you're ugly? It's okay. Which is which is basically what he does here. Um, probably most explicitly with the the ugly duckling, 
where there's a little Caillou kid who's bald, and the other kids are <laughs> yeah, making fun really of him. I didn't really think Caillou. I did. <laughs> and so uh, Han sings a song about uh, the ugly duckling. I did want to talk though about the ugly duckling, which is to me the last part of his. Well, not the ugly duckling itself. It's fine, whatever. It's a song. It, it obviously we all know the story of the ugly duckling. Uh, influenced Lilo and Stitch, great movie. That leads into Hans getting his stories published. And I think the one moment of this movie where Danny Kay gets to really act, other than just doing his natural charm, is when he sees his name in the paper and he goes, oh my gosh, but can you have my actual name there, not just Hans the Cobbler? And then when the guy says, yeah, for sure, he just looks so like in awe of the moment that he's in right now. Like he cannot believe that he Hans Christian Anderson is going to be a published author because there is a key difference between just being, Oh, stories from Hans, the cobbler. And this story is written by a person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Cause one of them's like, it becomes apocryphal and everyone is, Nope, this is an actual literary work. Although even then it is kind of ironic because the movie is apocryphal. Yeah, I know, but it's, I mean, I, I'm reminded very briefly, even though I don't want to get into this because I know Sarah doesn't like the person about the site. Um, and also Disney adds a whole different thing to it. But I'm reminded of the Lindsay Ellis video about saving Mr. Banks, about how it doesn't really matter necessarily, as long as you go into it knowing that it's apocryphal. You know what I mean? Like if it emotionally works in the moment. Which this movie is very upfront about. Way more upfront about than saving Mr. Banks is. To me, it's like, no, it's, I'm still like, this still feels probably like there was a similar moment in Han Christian Anderson's life, you know, where you are published for the first time. And I think Danny Kay really like acts that scene really beautifully. Like, I mean, he's great throughout the whole movie. Don't get me wrong. But that scene is like the last time in this movie. I'm like, that's it. That's the end of his emotional arc here. Everything else after this is just stuff I don't care about, really. Until he goes back to the town at the end, he sings a big melody. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite song from this, Sarah? Probably Inchworm. I think that's probably... To me, that's the most accessible song. It was definitely the most popular song to come out of the movie. Um, I don't think that Thumbelina is very good. But I happen to like all the other songs. I thought the other songs were good. I think they were well sung. Um, I just happen to like Inchworm the best. Inchworm's Even good. Even though the, like, the kids were a little weird in it. <laughs> I like its placement in the movie because it's kind of unique. Now, I will say, okay, this is what I was looking up, is that um, Singing in the Rain, right? Maybe you like this more than it, Sarah. I don't know. I, I don't know. When you, I, I haven't seen Singing in the Rain like over 10 years, so I can't even give a judgment call on Singing in the Rain that much. And I'm pretty sure I gave one already. But this made about um, double the money Sing in the Rain did in the U.S. So I'm like, oh, okay. So that explains why it got more nominations to me. You know what I mean? Like, this is a commercial. This was a commercial success. That's my point. Also, I got to say, I'm sure Caleb probably only knew this, but I did not know that Debbie Reynolds was dubbed as a singing voice in Sing in the Rain. That's Mm -hmm. ironic. (laughs) Although I guess it says only for two songs. So I guess for Good Morning, she actually sang it, which is good because that's the main song I remember her singing in that movie anyway. Yeah, I do do want to talk about the ballet real quick um, because this takes 
10 minutes out of the back half of the movie to show the Little Mermaid ballet um, that Hans Christian Andersen has um, kind of wrote without knowing he wrote it. Like he wrote the story and gave it to the ballerina. He wasn't really aware they turned into a ballet. But um, he's very happy. But because of his pursuit of the ballerina, he ends up getting kicked out of the theater before he can see it. But he's like, that's fine. I can imagine it. And he imagines this um, 10 minute long sequence of the ballet that condenses and tells the whole story of the little mermaid. And uh, I, I understand why maybe it slows things down. And like I said, I don't know enough about ballet to like say whether it's good or not from that perspective, but I did enjoy it. And I enjoyed how it incorporated the sets and how they transitioned between the scenes. Um, it, it felt like a very good blending of ballet as an art form and film editing as an art form. And, uh, well, I already explained your work for me, so that's fair. Um, Sarah, what did you think yeah. of the ballet? Since I've obviously already talked about it a lot. <laughs> um, I thought it was boring. I didn't pay God. attention to it. Why would I care? <laughs> that's not I actually went back. I actually went back and rewatched it today because I kind of dozed off in it the first time I watched it. Um, but even when I was dozing off, I'm like, I'm liking this, but I've just had a very long day. Um, but today, going back, I was like, heck yeah, dancing. All right, do we want to do um, our close-off? Yeah, I feel like I feel like we should mention that the female lead oh, Yeah, we haven't talked for early at all. <laughs> well, the ballerina, that's like... She's not an actress. She's a ballerina. So that's I think she's good, with, though. For, like, I think she does a good job of what she's given. Yeah, she was. I mean, she wasn't. It, the point is more that it was just like her vehicle. Yeah. More than, you know, her being an actress. Yeah. That's why that whole sequence is there to show her off. Which I think it's good. It's just, you know, you have to be in a mood for ballet. And I wasn't. <laughs> I don't think the movie really primes you for that mood for ballet either. So, Sarah, what was this nominated for? It was nominated for Best Art Direction, Color. Best Cinematography, Color. Best Costume Design, Color. Best Scoring of a Musical Picture. Best Song for Thumbelina. Uh, and Best Sound Recording. You know, I just realized um, Sing in the Rain was not nominated for Sound Recording. What's up with that? Um, I, to me, this is actually, I mean, there's two good options here, like two really good options here, but I got to go with the costume design. I think the costumes in this movie are utterly gorgeous. And that's before you get to the ballet costumes, which are also beautiful. Um, literally in the first scene, I was like, wow, this is, these are some great costumes really using the color, Technicolor well. Uh, I love it. Costume design. Easy. Um, I'm going to say art direction. Because I have a real thing, like, I think, I guess it comes, I guess you could, you know, put it all the way back to, like, German expressionism. But I think that movies where you can very obviously tell that, like, a set is painted are, like, really special. Because it's almost like they don't care. Um, and it just adds, like, a, it just adds, like, a nice, like, fantasy element to it. It, it creates, like, a stage atmosphere mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, I'll also go art direction. I uh, especially like the ballet sets, but the rest of the sets are also really good. And several of them include water, which is always uh, pretty impressive. Cool. All right, Adam. 
Um, so, you know, part of me wants to go Dan's direction, uh, because this is like the first time it applies. <laughs> oh yeah. For the ballet stuff. Yeah, sure. But I actually think I'll give it best original song to wonderful Copenhagen, uh, which was probably my favorite of it. It's the intro into the, uh, into that setting. And also I like, uh, the singers are all these kind of burly sailor types and it's a different type of song than what we get in the rest. And I enjoyed it. Do I want to do? I'm going to do it. Inchworm, inchworm, measuring a marigold. Best song, best song, best song. <laughs> Before I say mine, I do want to say one thing I missed, which is interesting, is that the Mermaid Ballet incorporates passages from various pieces of Franz Liszt, which is the subject of a song to remember, which was done by the same director of this. I think that's interesting. Um, so now I'm a little, I'm not mad. You guys could pick, obviously, whatever you want. I'm surprised none of us are picking Danny Kay, and we're all just picking different songs, because I have to give it to I'm Hans Christian Andersen. It's an earworm. It's, it really is. It's been stuck in my head since I've seen it. Uh, and it's, it's a good song. I, I cannot be mad at that song. Uh, I can't really be mad at any songs in this festival that really sticks out to me. So. Thumbelina's the weakest, so right? Like, how did that get the yes. That was not good. <laughs> I was very surprised. I guess because it's like the slow scene. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. You guys ready to hear what we're going to do next time? Yes. Yeah. We have a 26 Academy Awards. I've got some bad news for you guys. Well, well, okay, here's the thing. It's bad news, but I think all, th- all three of them, that's the bad news, is that there are three movies for uh, this Academy <laughs> Award. Uh, but all three of these are movies I've always wanted to watch. Okay, the first one we're covering is one I haven't heard of, but I'm interested in, but the other two are pretty well known, and I'll tell you what the other two are later. But the first film we'll be covering from the 26th Academy Awards with three nominations and no wins, yes, it got down that low, is Drumroll Please. Otto Preminger's The Moon is Blue. Woo. It's uh, based off a stage play. Okay. It has David Neven in it. A young David has, Neven performance. It has William Holden. Why'd you skip William Holden? Oh, yeah, he's in it too. Well, okay, here's the thing. <laughs> William Holden, I only know his films from around this time. Oh, never mind. I've seen Network. All right, there's two big actors in this. William Holden and uh, David Neven. Well, William Holden was also... Wasn't he also in? He was in a bunch. No, no, no. I'm thinking. Never mind. Never mind. Powell. I was thinking. No, I was thinking that oh. he was in Roman Holiday, but he was in Sabrina. He um is used in archive footage for Bring Me the Head of Charlie Brown, which is listed as a film that he's been in that I've seen. It's in but Sunset Boulevard. I haven't seen it. I don't. I don't want to overhype the other ones though for this year for this ceremony, but. I do think the other two are movies that I've always wanted to watch. So maybe you guys have seen them, maybe you haven't. But we'll talk about those when we get to those. So, all right. I'm Danny Vincent. You can find me on Letterboxd at Blank Mints. You can also find my other two podcasts, Why Is with Ty and Dan and Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar journey on anywhere you can find your podcast. 
Yeah. I am Caleb. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. And from there, you can find my litany of other podcasts Hot Trash Unlimited, All New 52, which I do with our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe. And Star Wars Therapy. And you can find me on Letterboxd sometimes. Um, just find me. Hey, 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 hey. Uh, check out her everything ever all at once. It's really good. I wouldn't even that. It's passable at best. Um, <laughs> the funniest ones are my Lord of the Rings ones, where I'm just like pretty good. <laughs> I, I remember I was a little annoyed by your Two Towers one because I was like, "That's my favorite." <laughs> Two Towers is the best one. Um, <laughs> we never so did funny. watch. We never did watch the third one. <laughs> anyways, anyway. long. <laughs> I mean, it's good, but it's long. <laughs> what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-K-Y-29. Um, you can find us, Snub Club, uh, Facebook, Snub Club, Twitter, Snub Club Podcast, Pod, Snub Club Pod, and Instagram, Snub Club Podcast. All right, and we'll see you next time for The Moon is Blue. Bye. 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 We're Hans. Oh, we should have ended with like, we're the snub club. Goodbye.